Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and verse 32. A verse that I mentioned at our Wednesday night prayer meeting that I've been reflecting upon. Luke 12, 32. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, simply says, It is the Father's good pleasure. I like that already, don't you? Our God is a Father, and He takes pleasure in certain things. It is your Father's, Heavenly Father's, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. A gift. What does the word give mean? Free? Do you have to earn it? It's a gift. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I want to work this morning with the concept of knowing God as your heavenly Father. And when God sends us out to do mission, whether it's evangelism or missions in other countries, or whether it's just whatever gift that God has given you to function in, that everything happens because it's the Father's good pleasure. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you His kingdom. Amen? Amen. What does that mean? He's pleased to give you His kingdom. Now, down through history, people have had wrong images, erroneous concepts of God's nature. A tremendous revelation that we have in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John especially, a revelation in the teaching of Jesus, is that this almighty, sovereign God who rules over all time and eternity, rules over all space, is none other than the loving, heavenly Father. That's His nature. He's a loving, heavenly Father who takes pleasure in interacting with His children. That should make you shout. He's not a distant, remote deity out there. He is an intimate, warm, affectionate, communicative, heavenly Father. I like that. And when we represent Him to the world, what does He want us to portray to the world? If you read Matthew 5... Verses 44 and 45, he would make this statement. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. For what reason? What's the next phrase say? Why does he ask us to behave in that manner? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's saying that in your witness to the world, I want you to reflect my compassionate nature as a heavenly father. That's the image we are to portray to the world. So our witness to unbelievers is to resemble our Heavenly Father. He wants our character and He wants our activities to reflect that nature of Him being a Father. I've got good news for you. I like bringing you good news. There is no need for you in your life to seek the applause of people. You don't need to. You know why? Because you have a heavenly Father who sees what you do in secret. And He promises to reward you openly. Matthew 6, 3-4 But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your charitable deed may be done in secret. And your Father, who? Your Father, who sees in secret, will Himself reward you openly. Knowing God as your heavenly Father sets you free from needing applause from people. That's good. It affects your prayer life as well. In Matthew 6, verse 8, when it comes to prayer, Jesus says, Your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. And in our prayer life, we're not trying to impress a distant deity with our long and rambling prayers. Don't need to. He is your heavenly Father, who knows what you need even before you ask Him. So it affects the way you pray, knowing God is your heavenly Father. It affects your attitude towards provision, needing things in life. You know why it affects your attitude? It's because God is your heavenly Father. Matthew 7.11, it says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him. If you know God is your heavenly Father... You don't need to seek applause from people. Changes your prayer life. Changes your attitude towards provision. And it even changes your attitude towards life and death. Did you know that? In Matthew 10, verses 28 to 29, Jesus says, Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. He's even in control of those things. And knowing God as your Heavenly Father changes your total outlook at the subject even of life and death. The truth is this, when Jesus ministered, when He was on the shores of Galilee, everything He did was birthed out of this knowledge that the God that he prayed to was a heavenly Father. 
Do you remember when he multiplied five loaves of bread to feed 5,000? Do you remember that story? The Bible says that he looked up to heaven to give thanks, and he blessed the food. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you remember his prayer before he gave the command for Lazarus to come out? Do you remember his prayer? He would say, uh, then it says, they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, who's he talking to? How does he address God? He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you have sent me. The miracle of feeding the 5,000 is because Jesus prayed to his Father. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is because Jesus had communication with his Father. The Gospel of John especially is quite clear on this matter, that everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said, he simply did and said what he heard the Father do and say. Is that true? It's a relationship with a heavenly Father. He initiated nothing on his own, but everything he did was the fruit of his relationship with knowing God as a benevolent Father. John 5.19, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself except what he sees the Father do. And whatever the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. It was the Father sending Jesus. Not a remote, cold, distant deity. But it was a heavenly Father that sent Jesus. What is the image that we have of God? And then when God is going to send you, and he's going to send me out in mission, he makes this point to his disciples. When you go out, it is at the, the beckoning, it is the will of, of an intimate, benevolent, and generous Father that's sending you. That's the image he wants you to portray to the world. It is a generous, benevolent, compassionate, affectionate, warm-hearted Father that has sent you. And that's the image He wants you to give to the world. And so when you hand a tract to somebody and says, well, you're going to hell, I don't think that's exactly the image that we're to portray. Now, I'm not doubting the reality of hell. Not at all. But we present God as a judge that's ready to pounce on people rather than a compassionate, warm, affectionate, loving, caring, concerned, heavenly Father. And when he sends his disciples out, he gives them these instructions in the Gospel of John. In chapter 16, 23 to verse 28, he says, In that day, you don't have to ask me anything. Most of truth, I say to you that whatever you ask the Father, in my name he will give it to you. 
Now, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. So begin to ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've spoken things to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak with figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I'm not saying to you that I shall pray the Father for you, because the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I've come forth from the Father, come into the world, and now I'm going to leave this world and go to the Father. And here's the truth, is you can talk to the Father yourself. That's good news. But who are you talking to? Your Father. That's who sends you out, is the Father. So the disciples are simply to have their own relationship with their Father as they go out in ministry. You know what that means? There's no need to rely on self-effort. Praise God for that. But we lean on God as our Father. Do we have such a relationship with God? Now, the fact is, what I'm saying, everybody here mentally understands that. I doubt there's anybody here that has a problem with anything I've said so far. We mentally understand that. However, people still live as if they're orphans who don't know their father. Mentally, you know it. But relationally, and in your conscience, people still tend to see themselves as an orphan who has no intimate relationship with a father. And that greatly hinders faith, and that greatly hinders ministry, and it greatly hinders how you can express the will of God to this world. Instead of people living with a vital relationship with a heavenly, benevolent, generous father, a lot of people, even though they're believers, they operate under a sense of abandonment, still think of God as distant, still think of God as remote, and therefore, when they get out involved in ministry, they have a tendency towards self-reliance because you don't know the intimacy of a loving, generous, benevolent Father. And people go into self-reliance. So I want you to imagine ministry as a river of life that flows out of our innermost being. Isn't that what Jesus said? Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But if we have an orphan mentality, if we don't have this vital relationship knowing God as a father, then what happens is that acts like a massive rock in the middle of the river that obstructs the flow of the river of God out of our life to other people. I want you to note how the ministry of Jesus flowed because he was in relationship to God as his Father. I just want to demonstrate that to you from the Scripture. Jesus knew that the God he prayed to, he was the son of a generous, compassionate, benevolent Father. I hope you never get tired of those words this morning. Generous, compassionate, Benevolent, merciful, caring Father. And his mission was to tell this world the nature of the one who had sent him. 
Jesus knew God as a generous father. He told many stories and many parables. One of my favorite ones, and you've probably heard me preach this a few times, is that Matthew 20 about sending laborers out in the vineyard. Do you remember the story? At 6 o'clock in the morning, he gathers a bunch of workers, has a contract with them. Do you remember that story? I'll pay you so much for your day's wages. They enter into contract, and they say yes. 9 o'clock, he goes back, and he finds more unemployed people. What are you doing here? Nobody's hired us. Go work in my field. No contract written. I'll just do what is right. At noon, he goes back, finds more. No contract. I'll just do what is right. 3 o'clock, in the afternoon he goes again still people standing around unemployed just go work in my field and I'll do what is right no contract one hour left in the day and he still goes there and still finds people and he says do just go work in my field he doesn't even tell them that they'll do what is right remember the story then when it comes time to pay them he pays them in reverse the first will be the last the last will be first He pays these last people who didn't even really work an hour a full day's wage. And he pays them first because he wants everybody else to see his generosity. And I could imagine those people who would work for the 12 hours of the day, who bore the heat of the sun and the sweat, they were probably getting angry that those people who did no work would receive the same wages that they were promised. And I can hear them saying this, that's not fair. I got good news for you, church. God's not fair. Hallelujah. He's not fair, he's generous. But you know, religious people can't handle that, that God would be generous. We deserve what we have, and just to give everything to everybody for free like that. God's not fair. He's generous. He's compassionate and He's benevolent. That is good news. I'm going to change the title from the parable of the prodigal son and I'm going to call him the prodigal God instead. You know who the most prodigal person there is in that story? Do you know what the word prodigal means? It means a spendthrift. It means waste money unnecessarily. You know who the one is the most spendthrift, wasteful spender in that story? I'll tell you who it is. It's not the son who left home. It's the father who received him back. He threw a party. A big party at massive expense. The father was prodigal. That is the nature of our God. Did you catch that? He's merciful generous, gracious, and he's compassionate. The Pharisees that hated these parables, because a lot of them Jesus knew, they knew that Jesus was speaking against them. They never saw God like that. And their position is represented in the parable of the talents. Do you remember that parable in Matthew 25, I believe it is? Do you remember that parable where he gives one talent, five talents, Ten talents, do what you're all going to do. And when he came to the guy with, with the one talent, he went and hurt, he hid it in the, in the soil. Do you remember that? And you know what his excuse was, why he hid it in the soil? I knew you were a hard taskmaster. That's the position of the Pharisees. 
That's how they portray God. I got good news for you. God is not a hard taskmaster. He is benevolent and generous, and he's not even fair about it. Amen. That's good news. That's who we are representing to this world. And that's the image that we are to portray to this world, to our activities. Jesus made himself dependent upon God because he knew that God was benevolent. We've already read this, but Jesus said in John 5.19, I'm telling you, the Son can do nothing of himself. I only... I see what the Father does, and that whatever He does, I do it as well. He was in complete relationship with His Heavenly Father about everything that He did. By contrast, religious people don't do that. They instead are independent, self-reliant, they plot, they scheme, and they manipulate events to achieve their own ends. They try to make things happen. You don't need to make anything happen if God is your father. Isn't that the true of the Pharisees? They went out and manipulated events, worked behind the scenes, came up with plots and and plans and all of that to get their will achieved. If you know God as your father, you don't have to do any of that. That's good news. If you know God as your heavenly father, you can be secure. You're secure in his favor and you're secure in his love. Jesus knew that because he would say this in John 5.37, The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. He knew who he was in relationship to his Father. And because he was secure, he could reach out to the rejects of society, like the tax collectors, like your alcoholics, like your drunks, like your prostitutes. He could go out and minister to them and rub shoulders with them because he was totally secure in knowing that God loved them. That's good news. That is good news. By contrast, the religious people, the Pharisees, despise Jesus for that very thing. Who does he think he is? Why does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? If you know God as your heavenly Father... You have no need to seek approval from the world because your Heavenly Father seeks to give you approval Himself. Now that's good news. I could say, I really don't care what my neighbors think of me. I really don't care what this world thinks of me. If God approves me, what does it matter? Amen. What does it matter what the world thinks of you if God himself approves you? That's good news. I mean, listen to what Jesus said in John 8.50. He said, I don't seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it for me. When the Father gives you his approval, what do you need? By contrast, people who don't have such a relationship with God as a heavenly father. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They've got to get it from somewhere else. If you have your approval from God, what else do you need? 
Now, because Jesus knew God as his heavenly Father, he also had a correct self-image. He could say many times in the Gospel of John, the Father loves the Son. And just being content in that knowledge that the Father loves you means you don't have to go about trying to prove your self-worth by comparing yourself with other people. Now that's good. But the religious people don't have that. And so you've got the Pharisee who's praying in the temple and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. You know, these extortioners, these adjust the adulterers, or even this tax collector here beside me. And their sense of self-worth was a superior sense, a holier-than-thou sense. If you have your approval from God, you don't have to compare yourself to anybody. Now that's good news. That's good news. So when Jesus came to this earth, he came into a world where people misinterpreted the scriptures in a terrible manner and misrepresented the image of who God is. And so Jesus spends his entire life, all 33 years of it, and everything that he said and everything that he did is to correct that false picture and replace it with the true image of God who he says is a compassionate, caring, warm, affectionate, speaking, relating, communicative, concerned, heavenly Father. He would say this to his disciples, He that has seen me has seen the Father. And he spent his whole life correcting the false image of the nature of who God is. So if you know the right image of God, if you know Him as your heavenly Father, if you know Him as loving, generous, and benevolent, what difference does that make to you when you go out in ministry to other people? We discover in the life of Jesus he could do this. He could give himself away in sacrificial love because he knew he was loved. He could give himself away and offer mercy to those who failed. And he could be warm and affectionate in his love towards other people. Now, by contrast, the religious people, the Pharisees, they were jealous of other people because they had no sense of acceptance and no sense of security in their relationship with God. And because they had no sense of approval and no sense of acceptance with a loving Heavenly Father, their attitude towards other people was to offer judgment and take them down so they could appear superior to them. Does that sound like religion? That's what they did. And they were cold. And they were hard in their attitudes towards people. Why? Because they didn't know God as a loving Heavenly Father. So they could be bitter cold and heart in their attitudes towards other people. And instead of helping the vulnerable people, they used vulnerable people for their own purposes. 
You remember in the story of Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, they planted a man with a withered hand on the front row. Remember that? Just to see what Jesus would do on the Sabbath day. Did they have any compassion for this man? They even used the vulnerable people and exploited vulnerable people because they had no concept of God as a heavenly father. So when you and I are sent out, we must rest on the knowledge that the one who commissions you to go out is a heavenly father. And in him you have your security. He is generous. He is merciful. He seeks your good. And he loves us. And if people have those issues settled in their lives, then you can offer yourselves to other people as vessels through whom he may express his compassion, knowing that you are well-loved and well-favored and well-cared for, and you're the apple of his eye, that means you can easily risk loving other people. Because if they don't love you back, it's okay, somebody better loves me. You can risk opening your heart and risk opening yourselves and you can make yourself vulnerable in the needs of this world because you are well established in a relationship with a loving God. But if we haven't got those things sorted out in our hearts, then it's a real stumbling block in us to allowing God's power to flow through us in supernatural ways. If we have false images, it nullifies our faith And they become large rocks in the river that should be flowing out of our hearts. But the truth is this. I'm going to give you eight reasons here why people struggle with this. Why people struggle with knowing God in such intimacy. You know, perhaps people have been conditioned by traditions. Tradition rules you rather than revelation of the scriptures rule us. Some people have heard an incomplete gospel, a distorted gospel that emphasizes how angry God is. And he gets so furious and so wrath, he's got to take his vengeance out on somebody, and he takes it out on somebody innocent. And somehow there's a presentation of the gospel that talks about the wrath of God rather than the compassion of God, and has left people with the wrong image. Some people grow up in church because you're a second or a third generation believer and you have inherited a tradition passed down but you've never had your own personal encounter with a radical love of God for yourself. Maybe your grandparents did, but not you. To a lot of people, God is distant. God is not intimately related in the everyday affairs of their lives. If you're a child of the Reformation, you probably have been taught that the days of God speaking to your heart today is past. That the only way God speaks is through the Scripture. And there's no reliance on the present Holy Spirit to speak the Word of God into your heart. That has been for another time past and we ignore that today. Some people have been taught that God doesn't speak today, and so they have no expectation of ever hearing God speak in their hearts. No expectation of feeling the warmth of His love in your heart. 
Some people struggled because they didn't have a good natural father, and therefore they simply can't relate to God as a father because they don't know what a father is. A lot of people grow up in cultures where it's almost forbidden to show warmth and affection. And some people grow up in Christian homes, but there's never been warmth, never been affection, never been hugs, never been kisses, never been touches, never been embraces. It's made a poor image, a bad image of who God is. People grow up in legalistic churches. Some people have been taught that any expression of emotion is somehow wrong and to be repressed, especially in church. Yet when we worship, it is our Heavenly Father that seeks such to worship in spirit and in truth. The fact is God yearns for us to release our heartfelt emotion to Him when we worship. God created us with emotion. And it is right to be emotional and to release it to the Lord. It is absolutely correct to do that. Some people have never experienced the love of God themselves. To them, it's only a theory that you learned in Sunday school, but you've never actually felt it. Thank God He loves us. Whatever the reason, here I'm going to give you eight Erroneous concepts that a lot of Christians have about the nature of God and how it affects how you minister to other people. Number one, a distant God loves you conditionally based upon your performance. A distant God loves you conditionally based upon your performance. I'm glad God doesn't love me based on my performance. Where do people get that from? Certainly not the scripture. Maybe that's the way your parents treated you. I don't know. But that's not how God is. Listen to the scripture. Romans chapter 5, 8. It says that God loved us while we were yet sinners. We didn't have to perform for him in order to get him to love us. In our sinful state, he loved us. Amen. And in our sinful state, he gave his son to the cross for us forever demonstrating His unconditional love. There's nothing you can do that can condition God into not loving you. Are you secure in that? Or are you always trying to earn His favor and His love? God is distant to such people. A second thing is that you have a remote God that hardly ever speaks, if ever. And if he does speak to your life one day, it's because he wants you to do something. The concept of a relational, personal speaking God to a lot of people is foreign. We're even taught God doesn't speak today. I've got news for you, yes he does. Yes, He does. 
How many times do you read in the scripture, and the word of the Lord came to him? That doesn't mean they opened their Bible. That means they heard the voice of God explode in their own hearts. And the word of the Lord came to them. And the word of the Lord came to them. And the word of the Lord came to them. I've got news. Your loving Heavenly Father is a speaking God. And He is a relational God. And He wants to commune with you daily. A relationship with Him. And yet this concept to a lot of people is foreign. Is even taught against. The truth is this, that God loves to speak to His children. Amen. He loves to speak to His children. He will guide you. He will counsel you. If necessary, He will rebuke you and chastise you. But He guides us with this counsel. But if we fail to know God as a generous, benevolent, heavenly Father, then we, take, we, we have this image of Him as being somewhat manipulative. And a manipulative God delights in controlling purely for His own ends. But where in the Bible do people come up with that image? But it's an image that a lot of people have. The truth is this. The Scripture teaches that God leads His children into ever-increasing freedom, into greater joy, and into the greater fullness of life. Amen. That's the nature of our God. Galatians 5.1 says, Christ has set us free. He's not controlling, and He's not manipulative. He has your best interests in mind. Amen. A fourth thing, some people see God as harsh. And He has set forth an unreasonable standard that nobody can live up to. And when you fail to live up to His unreasonable standard, then He is critical of you. Is that true? Is that true? Not at all. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, says this about God's nature. He is a father, and he is compassionate towards his children. He knows our frame, and he knows that we are but dust. He knows how frail we are. He knows when we fail. But the good news is, we have an advocate with the Father. He's covered us with the blood of His Son. And He empowers us for victory. That's His nature. Some people think God is fickle. He's unreliable. He only will fulfill His promises when He feels like it. That's not what the scripture teaches. Isaiah 26 verse 4 says, Our God is an everlasting rock. He is completely trustworthy. No one throughout all eternity will ever be able to see. When you get to the end of the story, and you get to look back on the history through the eyes of God, you're no one is ever, ever going to be able to accuse God of letting people down. Because His ways will be evident to everybody, and you'll see clearly. He has always done what is right. 
To a lot of people, God is aloof. He is distant, he is cold, and he is unable to display any emotion. I've got good news for you. God can get emotional. Come on. God has emotion. And he releases that emotion towards his people. So to have cold church services and rigid worship services without the release of heartfelt gratitude and emotion, I simply can't find such a concept in the Bible. Tradition has taught it, but it's certainly not in the Bible. It's certainly not in the Bible. The God of the Bible is warm. Come on. He's warm. The God of the Bible is affectionate. The God of the Bible communicates by speaking to His people. The God of the Bible uses His people. The God of the Bible conveys His love and conveys His affection in many, many ways. He loves to speak to us. He loves to be in relationship with us. He is our help. According to the Psalms, under the shadow of His wings, you and I can shout for joy. Amen. Some people think God is stingy. Where's His generosity? He's stingy. As if God will hold out on His children. Listen, the Bible says God is lavish. God is generous in His grace. He's not mean. If you only work the last hour of the day, He still pays you the full day's wages. That is the nature of our God. Some people see God as unforgiving and merciless. Do pray tell where you get that image from. Nowhere in the Bible. That runs contrary to the entirety of Scripture. I hope you never get tired of me quoting Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Lord, show me your glory, Moses said. So the Lord passed by him. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and in truth, showing mercy for thousands. That's his nature. He is a warm, intimate, relational, affectionate father. And when he sends us out, that's the image he wants us to give to the world. So where do these false images of God come from? To entertain them is to nullify any sense of faith rising up within us. It dams up the river of life. God is the God of all comfort. Amen. His love, His affection is extended toward us. He wants us to walk in the reality of that love and have a communing relationship with the speaking God. I like this. As imperfect as we are, and how many besides me are imperfect? As imperfect, well, some perfect ones out there, that's good. Uh, as imperfect as we are, the truth is, our Heavenly Father wants to use us while we're still imperfect. Now that's good news. He still wants to use you while you are imperfect. And when you get sent out, 
It is a benevolent and generous, compassionate Father who accompanies you, and you're not on your own. You're not doing this as an orphan. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. An orphan doesn't know his father. We're not that way. Listen, we're not orphans. We're sons and daughters of the Almighty God who just happens to be generous, gracious, and compassionate and sends us out with that knowledge. The truth is this, that you and I should probably not focus so much on our worthiness to be used, but we should focus on God's incredible grace and His love instead. My experience in ministry is that God really deeply loves lost people. He really does. And He yearns to make Himself known to them. He wants them to experience His grace and His mercy. My personal experience has proven to me that it is relatively easy to pray for unbelievers for miracles. Relatively easy. Because God is so yearning to give them a taste of reality. When we started planted a church back in Canada, both Darla and I were just in our 20s. We wanted everybody, saint and sinner alike, to encounter God in His power. To know God in power. We had no qualms about praying with unbelievers for miracles and for healings. And often what we did see is we saw God do amazing people, amazing things to people who didn't know Him. And what happened is they had experienced the power of God. And it did something to their heart. It opened up their spirit and made them hungry for the things of God. And even if they couldn't understand what I was preaching, they came anyway because they were hungry. Because they were alive. And they don't care what they ate. And they don't care how much they understood. They just wanted to eat. Amen. And that's just the way it works. God wants you to pray for unbelievers so they can taste the power of God and will open up their spirit to the things of God. Once they taste, they become hungry and they will pay any price to know God more intimately. And that is the truth. If I could give short testimonies, and I got so many stories back in Canada. Both Darla and I were in our 20s only. That's a long time ago. We were in our 20s, and we planted a church. Same format, she led the worship, I did the preaching. It hasn't changed all these decades later. You know, but we saw miraculous things happen. Really saw miraculous things happen. Remember the day on the Sunday morning where the Spirit of God flooded the room. And I don't know how to explain it, except like as a wind from behind my back went through the whole room and people just fell in the power of God. Nobody praying for them. Nobody laying hands on them. Just the Spirit of God just swooshed through the room and things and miracles were just released. I mean, when you get church like that, it does something for you. 
it does something for you. Remember the guy with a heart condition that came in one time, and he got so drunk in the Spirit of God, the guy couldn't stand up if you paid him to stand up. He was just so inundated with the power and the glory of God. He was down on the floor. What's happening to me? He doesn't, he's, he's a brand new person in the things of God. And he gets up and he tries to stand up and he's back on the wall to gain himself some thing and he just slithers down again. He couldn't stay up, whatever. And just the power of God. A story after story after story of praying with a teenage girl that was in an accident and her neck was in a brace and just prayed for her and, and nothing seemed to happen at the moment. And when the service was over, she went and sat outside in the car waiting for her mom to stop visiting with people. You know, And then she comes running back into the building, takes the neck brace off. Says, but when I sat in the car, my neck went crack, crack, crack and came back and put the brace on the wall as a trophy of the power and the presence of God. That's church. That's church. Now I have to ask the question. We saw miracle healings. We saw amazing things. We saw people baptized in the Holy Spirit. Every once in a while we had a what you call in this country an AGM, annual general meeting. Let me tell you our annual general meetings. The power of God showed up and nobody cared for business. Prophesying in the annual general meeting. Laying hands on people in the annual general meeting. That's the way to have general meetings, I tell you. Just the presence of God flooded the room in power. We were only in our 20s. Didn't know what we were doing half the time. Didn't have the experience, the age. We were only in our 20s. Now the question is this, were we worthy to see that happen? Did you think we had all our doctrine right? Think I had it out perfect when I was in my 20s? You think I understood the Bible 100%? What do you think? Do you think our attitudes were 100% correct all the time? What do you think? Don't answer that question. (laughs) Or is this the truth? That God, in spite of us, did what He did because He is a loving, heavenly Father. He's a loving, heavenly Father. So all I can say is expect your heavenly Father to use you in the supernatural. Don't be afraid to pray for an unbeliever for a miracle or for a healing in their body. Expect your Heavenly Father to guide you and expect your Heavenly Father to shine through you. That's God's nature. That's who sends us to the world. Not as distant, not a remote God, not a stingy God, compassionate, generous, benevolent, Loving, caring, Heavenly Father. He loves you. You're secure in Him. What else do you need? You don't need anybody's applause. Their opinion doesn't matter. He accepts you. He approves you. He loves you. Don't have to earn His favor. He's a gracious God. That's His nature. And that's who sends us out. Aren't you glad? That's the God 
the Bible describes. Amen? Amen.